planning for failure and failure to plan. Um, the Texas power grid obviously comes up and like kind of winterizing and weatherizing and how do you prepare for storms and how much money do you put into that kind of thing? Um, like Readycom, don't put your data center below grade with the windows. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jer Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about failure planning and, well, failure to plan. Are you interested in spreading and promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So the grid failure in Texas is part of what prompted this episode, but it's not the only reason we're talking about this. Um, and for those who are not paying attention or listening to this much later, the Texas power grid got shut down by a failure to winterize capacity and the crazy winter storms that came through in February of 2021. And wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is important to know that this was a very unique or I, I guess uh, unusual cold storm that came through and then it was it was a cascading of of multiple failures right because i mean not only did you have this extreme cold you didn't have proper winterizing procedures done by certain uh, energy providers and then also uh you know apparently they were very close to just almost destroying the grid even further unless they immediately started doing rolling blackouts i follow a couple of youtubers uh notably the 8 bit guy um, who's super popular, his house got flooded. He's yeah. moving in, crap into his new studio he's still in progress of building because that building didn't flood. And I've seen several other uh, YouTubers from the Texas area with, with very similar damage, and it's it's not just a handful of people. There's a lot of people in Texas that are that are suffering because of this. And yeah, freak winter storm, but this is what climate change looks like. Yeah, that was that was enough to make the news in Europe here. I mean, we, I came into work and everybody wanted to ask me about. Do you know anybody in Texas? You know how it's going? I'm like, ah, I'm here too. But it was it was big news and it was bad. Yeah. So from what I understand, and I'm again, this is a r relatively rapidly evolving situation, so I don't have all the details. But from what I understand. The Texas energy grid is separate from the rest of the country and is largely deregulated. So they were optimizing for current carrying capacity only, not for generative capacity or other kind of longer term elasticity in the market. It was only, you only get paid for what you produce, not what your capacity is. Which of course means that when you have a sudden need of capacity because large sections are down, you can't spin up quickly enough to provide it which means you can't provide enough power. And if you having partial powers in some ways worse than having no power or full power. And oh, so they made the decision else. to just shut down. Yeah. So they made it to shut down the grid in some places, if not most of Texas. And it was done, of course, during the middle of a freak cold snap and people rely on electricity to heat their homes. So badness all around. It's hard not to talk about the politics of the situation. And I don't want to but, live and dwell there. But the the desire for profit above 
regulation to ensure the safety of the infrastructure that literally keeps people alive um is is really kind of scary and that's that's kind of the political uh movement economy in Texas is without regulations the power company can pull in more profit but you know if, if they're unregulated they'll do what's best for well their themselves. bank account <laughs> And, and that part of it reminds me very much of the Enron story. And I imagine that a lot of our listeners are not old enough to remember Enron completely because it was 20 years ago this November that that whole disaster Quit kind of telling unfolded. people our age, Brendan. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but that was, Enron was an energy company in Texas that was trading on the deregulated markets in California, Brazil, and some other places. And they were profiting from the instability of California's energy grid, which sounds a lot like Texas right now, unfortunately. Of course, Enron, its undoing was financial mismanagement and lying on its books. So well, and, that's and a whole other thing. Also, wasn't some of those blackouts caused by themselves? I mean, didn't they own some of the energy providers and they would actually request that they would stop producing so they could in turn manipulate the market? Possibly. Again, it's been a while and I, I'm yeah. not to speed on it. There's a really good book if you care to, to read it. Um, it's called The Smartest Guys in the Room. And it's about the energy crisis. And there's also a CNBC, C, CNBC uh, docu-series that's um, based on the same title. Yeah. And we'll, um, we'll throw a link to the show notes about, for both of those, for the, the Wikipedia page, for Enron itself, and, and the book. Um, but it was very much a failure of planning. And how do, you, how do you make sure you have excess capacity for things that are important? And when it comes back to technology, that's something that's near and dear to our hearts. You want to make sure you have enough capacity. I thought one other thing was interesting was that actually this was not a, I mean, even though this was kind of a freak occurrence, it isn't without precedent that about roughly 11 years ago, this same thing occurred uh, where there was a, 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 you know, it was very cold. Uh, winterizing was not done properly. Capacity was, uh, was not able to meet and but they had rolling blackouts in Texas as well. So we, we actually had this same, similar scenario happen previously and even, um, you know, uh, various uh, energy producers in Texas were given recommendations on how to better prepare for the next winter storm. And it, it, I just find it very interesting that either they weren't met or uh, weren't followed up on to prepare for the next occurrence like That's that. That's why Texas's energy grid is separate from the rest of the country, because no one else will touch it. I think it was just <laughs> long enough that the voters forgot. That's multiple cycles of elections, and therefore it's no longer a priority. But honestly, we've all seen this in in operations work. So for me, and the hospitals for poignant, COVID, sorry to derail. Well, but the most poignant example for, for IT work or operations work is you're in an organization that has a data center, a physical data center, or they have, they've got you know links somewhere, and they're paying for two... 10 gig links or two one gig links or whatever it is. And they say, well, we don't want to have one link idle. So we're going to, you know, do active active. We're going to share the, the load on both links. And the idea is that if one link goes down, we still have the other one to use. But then the business seed grows and changes. And now you need one and a half of the links all the time. Otherwise things fail. So when the one link goes down, you're no longer, in, you, no, you, you no longer have the ability to run your business because you're no longer in a failover capacity. You're no longer N plus one. You are just active. And 
it creeps up on you really, really easily. Yeah, and I like the failure pattern of the fact that you're using active-active. You know both are working. You know both route correctly. But then it's the, the, the creepage of watching that, that capacity steadily increase over like 12 months and coming to a point, you know, 18 months down the road where you don't realize that you no longer have a working backup. And it's oh, also I, like when you ahead. had physical, uh, you know, physical infrastructure and you would run either applications directly on that infrastructure or even VMs within the data center. And you would have to plan and provide capacity to be able to grow to meet demand before you could just run an API call and just get another hundred instances. Well, I mean, Slack had an outage earlier this year um, and they posted a really good postmortem about it. And their issue was related to capacity planning and, and very short term capacity planning. How does an ALB warm itself up correctly when it's doing, you know, CPU based scaling or, or whatnot? And we'll throw it in the show notes as well. But this is a very real problem to take very seriously and to think about the repercussions of how do you bring on more capacity? How quickly can you do it? Is there more capacity to be had? And part of the of that um, root cause analysis that was really fascinating to me was they were studying their uh, demand and capacity curves of their network and their VPCs within the AWS infrastructure and were talking with the AWS support folks. And both companies are realizing that the scaling method that AWS had for what was it? Their um, transient VPC router um, didn't mm-hmm. match the the usual, the documented load and capacity uh, historical patterns that, that Slack was generating. I think it's also because Slack was, it was looking back over a couple of week window and Slack's quietest period of the, of the year is between like the 15th of December and January 2nd. And their busiest day of the year is January 2nd. So you go from the lowest point of the year on a rolling average to the absolute highest demand as people come back from Christmas break and whatever, and they're all logging back in again. AWS Transit Gateway, that's it. Really a fascinating post, a really a fascinating postmortem. Um, I can't recommend reading it. Yeah, that's a super fascinating uh, read. And it teaches you that you know, these capacity issues are subtle and can be very complex. That was a capacity issue involving both of those companies and and how their technology worked together. Yeah, I mean, we've all dealt with engineers who say, oh, well, you just monitor CPU and that tells you your capacity. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But we know that it's significantly more complex than that. And that was, I I will say, reading that in postmortem was fascinating with, that was that was incredibly complex with all the things that were in play and affecting each other. And it was, yeah, Welcome there's more people than IT. me working on it. That's for sure. One of the other things that, that, that postmortem pointed out to me that I want to talk about here is there's lots of systems that the steady state running load of a thing versus the cold start state are very different. So you can run an Elasticsearch cluster, for example, at a given amount of, you know, CPU and Ram and disk for, live ingestion and query and whatnot, and it's fine. But while you're bootstrapping it, while you're restarting it, it takes significantly more resources to start. And so you can be in a position where when it's, when it's running, it's healthy, but you can't actually do a full restart without doing a lot of major surgery. Um, 
can you and I dealt with that together? And that can be challenging and non-trivial. <laughs> um, but there are lots of situations. Yeah, but th- th- there are lots of situations where you're trying to optimize for a system that you don't test these paths very frequently. And how do you actually do capacity planning on that? Well, I was telling the story while we were getting ready. I, years ago, back when everybody had bare metal, we had a, a small, I was working at a small company. We had a data center that had slowly grown. And this was in North Carolina. And we had a hurricane come through. Everybody just packs up and goes home. We came back. For days, everything had been trying to spin up, and we didn't have enough amperage for all the disks to spin up together. So it was a constant spin up, fall down, spin up, fall down that went on for days. That's and that not is good for so disks. bad on the hardware. That's not good for that spinning rust. Exactly. But it also said, huh, maybe we should have looked at startup amperage, not just steady amperage. Because we did not have enough. I remember when Sun introduced the the X forty five hundreds, the thumpers, the forty eight disc, um, in a three or four U chassis. Oh, those are cool. It was the first super yeah. dense storage server. Their caution was like in the documentation was well, there there were two cautions. First was these things are a lot heavier than you think they are. You can't load a full rack with these <laughs> and expect your raised floor to handle them if you haven't done more engineering work there. So be careful. And second, we do staggered spin up, but even with that. They draw a lot. There's a reason these are 220 volt, not 110 volt. And they, you know, it's, I think it was, they had three power supplies. You needed two of them online. It was N plus one. It wasn't any one of the three because they drew a lot of power to to get those 48 drives moving. Well, that reminds me of a good university story. One of our IT offices was in a, really a historic building built in like uh, the early 1900s. And the the College of Sciences was looking for a space to expand their their server room infrastructure, their their HPC and computational stuff. And so they were considering taking what was the first floor of this old building that folks didn't really want to use as office space and transforming that into a data center. And the way the building was constructed, you entered onto the uh, first floor but really there was a basement. So you could go around behind the building and enter the basement. So the building was on a slope. And I was realizing that this building is built in the 1910s. And I had seen some of the floors in there running cables and, and doing repairs and whatnot. And so I finally found the facilities folks. And I'm like, I need to figure out a load bearing rate of the floor in this building that the the university wants to build a data center in. And eventually, well, it didn't take me long to figure out that, that with a raised floor, um, the load bearing weight was so low, even a server room of half racks would fall through the floor. <laughs> Ouch. Yes. Can't you imagine a server room of half racks? Failure to play it. Yeah, and a lot of these things can be mitigated if you take the time to understand the system and to think through the failure domain and to think through the testability of these pieces. So, like for the internet um, link example, what you should do is every other month on a Saturday or whatever your non-business weekend day is, shut off one of the links for an hour or two. See what happens. Make sure that critical systems still function. Make sure that you still have, you know, 
all of your operations are still moving when it doesn't disrupt operations for like the for the, the daily operations of the business, the, the daily making money. But there's all kinds of of parts and places of these systems that can be tested, but frequently just go because oh, it's not that important. We don't really need to do that right now. And then it doesn't happen. Yeah, well, what's I think the last time? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, my biggest frustration is usually you, the, oh, I want to test failures of these. Oh, it's critical. We can't shut it down. Well, do we know we can bring it back up if it, if it does get shut down? Because we're never testing it. There's, you, sometimes you have to just fight tooth and nail to even test your failovers, to test if, if you can recover. Because what good is a backup if you haven't tested it? Exactly. When was the last time you pulled a power, uh, one leg of a two of a, a redundant power supply to see what happens? Because I've had servers shut off before, because either the power, the other power supply wasn't seated properly, or or something yeah. in the firmware, and you pull one and the server goes off. Or the larger stage version of that in a data center environment, turning off a PDU, mm-hmm. because everything <laughs> should be wired to two. Everything That's should right. be. Hey, you've yeah. got dual, all of the amperage. You've got dual power supplies. Did you plug those into separate circuits? <laughs> well, I mean, Brendan, Jared, and I all worked together at uh, a few jobs ago where we were at a huge colo facility, and all of a sudden, half of everything went out. And Brendan and Jared's equipment went out because of how things were wired. And the stuff I worked on, we lost half our power supplies. But it was literally one per unit. They had killed off half the power in the facility. And that's, you know, it was an accident. And there were a bunch of firings over it because it was bad what happened. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> they also lost some of their uh, their battery uh, backup or, or something out of that, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, and that's why there were people losing their jobs because it wasn't just the engineering oops of shutting off the wrong piece of equipment that took down... Then they discovered all the other mistakes that had been made because redundancy didn't kick in, generators didn't kick on properly. There was a, a cascade of failures, but it was because it had never gotten tested. That exactly. oh, let's just throw the switch, make and sure everything works. Amazon even has a famously in one of their uh, AWS talks about how uh, they've had so many failures or, or or at least a few failures with PDU firmware where or um, uh, automatic transfer switch firmware where where they're switching from uh you know an electrical grid to either battery backup or to generators where the PDU just the the logic in it freaks out and it and it does something different than what it's supposed to do. I've had and, I don't know how many failures of ATS uh equipment in data centers that yeah. I I can just you know, walk into a data center and point on the box on the wall and tell you what's going to fail what happens when the ATC gets stuck in the middle. <laughs> well, and that's why a lot of organizations, especially like Jack, you, when you, were, you and I were at the university together, they did monthly ATS tests. And sometimes You're they got stuck to... in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did. But that's how you learn that the ATS switch is faulty and it doesn't take you down during a hurricane. But if, it, you, ha- if you have a scheduled monthly routine of on the first of every month, we're going to do we're going to throw the switch for five minutes or whatever it is. You learn real quick when things aren't wired up right. Ah uh, yes, when you have the ATS switch in equipment that's outside, and the enclosing is exposed to the sun, so it gets hot in the summertime, which means resistance increases, and you're already at maximal load. Oops. And and I think that's why testing is key, right? Because the difference between 
when it's in a controlled failure versus something you're not expecting is that you're prepared to try and fix the problem versus getting paged for something, figuring out where the, why the page is happening, going through your normal uh, process of debugging versus standing right there, knowing what you just did and it broke. It, oh, crap, it failed. We lost this. But at least you know right then what you needed to fix it. And hopefully you've already planned a backup to fix it real quick. Right. And If you know the test is coming, you're prepared. You have, oh, this are the possible implications. I'm ready for this. It, which exactly. is so know. much better than 3 a.m. going, what? <laughs> What's down? Huh? Well, I mean, the, the number of times that I've seen... Okay, when you have a plan test, you have all the engineers who need to be there. They've, they're all awake. They've all had coffee. They're all prepared for it. They're all just sort of idle, hoping to do not need to jump in, but able to jump in at a moment's notice versus Jack again, when things fail at 1030 at night on a Friday <laughs> and it's down the whole weekend because suddenly you're pulling people out of dinner and out of their whatever plans they were doing. And it's just this ongoing thing. And you, you never have anybody's A games. You never have anybody who's really awake. And by the time second shift rolls in, the the relief crew comes in. The first crew's completely burned out. They're going to miss things in handover. And all of this can be avoided if you test regularly. I really miss working in a data center environment. You remember when the I ECC don't... RAM and the uh, SAN went out? The RAM still well. looked good. It just, you know, didn't return valid results. Okay. I don't miss some of those things, but I do miss walking into a massive data center. I mean, that's, that is something that is a unique experience. I don't, I don't miss patch, swapping out power supplies. I don't miss patching no. firmware on raid cards. I don't miss any of it. Yeah, I, I don't drives. miss that. Although, we'll have to say, it's gotten better. I mean, remember when you used to had you had to use Windows to run certain firmware utilities, and now at least you can do it within Linux even? You don't even have to reboot to the firmware page. You could just... Uh, or reboot into the firmware, you could just do it from within Linux. I mean, that's... We've really yeah, advanced. I'm not, <laughs> the problem is scale has gotten so big, if you are managing bare metal, something's always out. Right. Well, and, the, and that's the thing, right? Is that now providers aren't sitting there dealing with onesie twosie. They're waiting until entire racks are problems or entire sections of things are down versus, yeah. oh, you know, the, the, the hard drive in server A is out. You know... <laughs> Who cares? I mean, really, yeah. at the scale we work at today with the cloud, you look at this statistically and mathematically to figure out, is the failure big enough to be to worth or warrant any sort of repair action or page versus, you know, just having services exposed to the Internet? And this is where I go back to some of the SRE work that, that Google has published. And, you know, you look at your... Um, your dual active-active interconnects, that's you, you're redundant, so you have two, right? So you want to look at how much traffic's going over that inter those interfaces, what the error rate is. You want to make sure that the latency of the traffic stays within normal parameters, and you want to have an idea of capacity. And the capacity, that fourth golden signal, is always the hardest to sort of grapple with. But in some cases, like uh, these network transfer, whatever, you know how much bandwidth you've got. You can easily measure the traffic and see how much of that bandwidth you're using. So your capacity is the amount of bandwidth you're using over the total. And if that's more than 0.5, you realize that you can't lose a link without impacting the business. And capacity planning is really hard. So when I was a junior admin, I mean, this is, this is a while ago, 
we would we were specking out a new mail server and i was looking at you know we need x number of users and each user has y amount of quota so we need a disk array that can handle x times y right well no because most users never get to their quota limits so you don't want to spend money needlessly you don't want to waste money on unused capacity but you also want to make sure you have enough that when you start running out you have buffer before you need to buy more and it's not a straightforward thing for a lot of use cases. I mean, I think network bandwidth is relatively straightforward, but there's a lot of things like how much CPU do we actually need for peak load over the last year? Uh, if how you don't have memory? a good metrics platform, you, you're never going to know. Well, we discussed uh, on multiple episodes, really, um, doing observability and visibility work that a bunch of us have experience in. You know, ingestion of that log traffic is pretty easy to model and scale for. The storage that that level of ingestion is going to require is easy to scale for and plan for. But how do you scale and plan for the query load, and how do you judge your query capacity? Especially when folks are doing, you know, ad hoc dashboards and whatnot, figuring out query capacity can be really challenging. We had one just recently where our metric server was collapsing and everybody's we traced it down to this one dashboard and the guy says well it's i I know this query's heavy but i only run it once no you had refresh turned on dude (laughs) tip number one make sure your refresh is 60 seconds or greater yes well it wasn't even returning in 60 seconds that was even when he intentionally ran it it was that bad so no. before a lot of Elastic's recent improvements in the past couple of years, I wrote a very simple tool that would allow me to block individual users from hitting the the endpoint, the Kibana endpoint, because we had issues where people would have a refreshing, an auto-refreshing dashboard turned on and go to lunch or whatever. And I couldn't find them. And they were hammering the system with these queries. And I was like, I'm not sure if your query is causing the system to be slow or the other way around. But I can just start blocking users until the, the until the problem goes away, because that was the only tool I had, and it was I did not feel good using it. I didn't enjoy it, but having the ability to shut people off is also good. Anyway, and I think that's actually I mean not to go on a, a huge tangent. I think that shows the the maturity of a either an application or an ecosystem where you have the ability to prevent the system from giving getting overthrown i I look at prometheus for example like right now there's little to no controls built in natively to help prevent when someone executes a really nasty query there's Uh, one major control that'll limit you know how many data points is returned right yeah figuring out you know how much how how many blocks you got to load into memory to get those data points out exactly and i can't block certain nasty you know like i can't say okay i'm not gonna let people use top k i I just don't want you to be able to sit there and say oh what's my largest uh um name series uh that i want to look at uh you know i mean it it it's just uh i wish those tools were available in that platform now not saying that there's not some third-party add-on that you could do or do a proxy and then do something there but still it's not baked in natively to the service while we're on war stories that reminds me of the early Elasticsearch leading wildcards mess that it basically broke the inverted index and caused the query to read every document on disk and ooh, that was bad that was that was one of those 
okay, we we're out of business. We're just going to wait and there's nothing we can do. And we're going to suffer because this is awful. Hated that. Yeah. I mean, at least Prometheus isn't that, uh, that exaggerated. It's just, oh, we got to restart Prometheus or, or Um's already taken care of it for us. Yeah. And to be fair, this is largely fixed now. The, the last search issue I'm, I'm talking about, um, I think I fixed in six, in the early yeah, six branch, but still not, a, not a fun way to start a presentation to realize the cluster is down because it's just read storming. Every time you went on a conference to give a presentation about elastic, <laughs> the production elastic cluster was, was non-functional. Yeah. Through no fault of your own. Well, so, yeah. I mean, you lose the power to the whole city you're in. That kind of does, knocks it <laughs> off. Yeah, not having internet either and having, anyway. Yes, we uh, went yeah. to Monotorama in PDX the year there was a, a an underground fire in one of the infrastructure vaults for the city and wiped out how many square blocks of power to the city? including the venue and our 30. hotel and the elastic and cluster course, was down 15 minutes before that happened the electric cluster went down and my coworker, uh, this is before ken had joined us my coworker who was helping me with it was on vacation in france and i had figured hey it'll be fine i'll, I'll go to the conference things have been pretty stable recently what could possibly go wrong and even if it doesn't i have remote access mm-hmm. yeah that, that was not a pleasant experience um, yeah, so, so to mitigate, back to mitigation, to, to mitigate this kind of capacity um, or to mitigate the, the failure planning stuff, you can iterate rapidly over your solutions. You can look at things, you can kind of those things. But the next big thing for me is getting opinions of other people who aren't quite so embedded in your system, who haven't been living with it for so long, because fresh eyes do wonders for pointing out glaring holes in your infrastructure that you haven't thought about. That's one reason I do. Uh, try to do some presentations and conference talks and such to get, you know, attention of other people doing the same thing. I mean, I've, I've had the Prometheus folks come down on me and say, if you would just do it the way you're supposed to, you wouldn't have that problem, Jack. <laughs> well, I also get people who've just seen it, have, have already been through a failure mode that you never thought of, but it blew up in their face. And they'll say, well, I had this happen. Have you thought about this? Uh, no, I hadn't. And it's the same reason we do code reviews is to have somebody else look at it and go, uh, you're missing a logic thing here. You, you didn't think about the case of what happens when you're down by one. And then what happens? Like then how do you handle a failure? Or you're in development, you call it defensive programming. Well, infrastructure as code. Guess what? We now have to be defensive about how we build the systems and the infrastructure. Failures occur. Bugs occur. You need to be prepared. And one of the common approaches to bringing some of these bugs to light is a, a, a technique called chaos engineering, where either automated or just a different team goes through and randomly stops a Kubernetes pod or pulls down a server or causes a break between VPC peering. And we get to react of, you know, how does that failure impact the system? Does it not cause a failure? as our redundancy, you know, pass that bit of chaos engineering testing, or is there stuff we need to go back and reevaluate? Also importantly, does it cause us, does it fail silently in a way that we don't notice, but would have other knock on effects if something else failed simultaneously? It's hard. I have so many vendors 
poking me to like, don't you want to buy our chaos engineering uh, uh, doohickey? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, no. Well, but I, I it, thought it, that was just called users. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty good. In in my experience, it hasn't been the tooling. Uh, I mean, you know, it's pretty easy to find someone who just clicks a button in a in a UI, uh, and it'd be great if it's automated. But but my experience has been it's been difficult to get manage, upper management to sign off on. Yes, we're going to intentionally either degrade or possibly even take ourselves offline uh, for a short amount of time during this day or week uh, to test things. Uh, it, it's been that that is the the biggest thing is to get that approval so that you can do that. It, it's the code version of your your ATS switch testing. Like seriously, that's that's what this is. So yeah, take it seriously. I mean, we can plan to do these failures and, and test. Or we can have them occur when we least expect them to. Like the first day everybody gets back to work after the Christmas break. Slack? Not a good day for a failure. I think it's it sometimes can be an easy sell when something happens. Um, I recently had somebody reiterating, don't waste a good crisis. And we had a, a significant failure and we used it as okay. We, we, you know, we got things back online, and then we went to man, upper manager said, "Look, we're susceptible to these. Let's start a project to fix some of these points of failure that we do have." And it was unfortunate, you know, having a having a significant outage sucks, but then you can use it so that it sucks less next time. You learn more from failure than from success. Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't want this episode for people to think that we should engineer things to never fail because they're going to fail. It's how do you plan for the failure and how do you plan to mitigate the failure that you're going to see? And you um, have to have some understanding of the failures you're planning for. Um, otherwise, you can go down a rabbit hole of, you know, planning for, you know, what happens if the U.S. gets hit by meteor and... We're going to have bigger problems to solve before we get the company back online in that case. So it's important to have some experience of, of what, what failures are you anticipating and want to be resilient to. Yeah, and in that vein, the, this, this brings up the final mitigation that comes to my mind, which is adding circuit breakers or other safety checks to systems. Um, I've seen places that say if more than N percent of the database or the user population gets modified or deleted or added, throw an alarm and stop because something is weird. And yeah, this is going to happen. Universities say twice a year when you do onboarding for, for new students. But the idea is it also stops from happening when somebody renames a database table and doesn't tell downstream. And then it wipes out the entire user database because, oh, well, they don't have employee IDs. so They have to be gone now. And it just stops. So having some kind of sanity check, some kind of circuit breaker, some kind of safety mechanism. Circuit breakers for that, quarries and Elastic and Prometheus? That'd be nice. Yeah. I mean, Elastic does have memory circuit breakers um, embedded. So you can say, don't execute queries that it thinks are going to be larger than a certain size. But these these systems exist for a reason. The, these safeties exist for a reason. And if you have them, you should be aware of them and know how to use them and how they react to things. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We'd also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website, 
at operations.fm. Or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Holodeck safeties are off.